You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey there, welcome to episode 7 of the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, I'm here with my co-hosts Evan Ratliff of The Atavist and Aaron Lammer, also of Long Form. How you doing guys? Good. Pretty good. Zoo crew's back in effect. <laughs> Always. Uh, Evan. I make the sound of shaking my head? Yeah. It comes through. Um, Evan, this week you talked to Tanahasi Coates. Yes, Tanahasi Coates of uh, more recently writes for the Atlantic, has for many years, has a blog. He's also uh, wrote The Beautiful Struggle, a memoir, which is fantastic. And also under assignment for The Atavist. Although did not know that until right now. A rolling deadline. He's <laughs> so an really, incredibly busy man. You proposed this interview just as a way of pressuring, like, <laughs> nagging him in person. Essentially, yeah. yeah I, right. I wanted to be able to get up close to really have something to hold over his head. Should be a really fun, uncomfortable interview. <laughs> All right, here's the interview. Someone goes back know, and looks through I know. even and then, little things that you wrote for the Washington City paper. That you didn't do that, did you? Yeah, sure did. Oh, my and God. they uh, nowadays because we've had the web for however long, it's all still there. It's oh, not like I had to go oh dig through God. some archives. Oh, but the thing, the thing I want to talk you about first is there was this old vibe uh, oh, no. bio of yours <laughs> for a piece that you did. I can't remember what the piece was about, but. Uh, it's your quote was my biggest literary influences are Spider-Man, Rakim, and Dungeons and Dragons. Right, Rakim. Yes, Rakim. Yes, yes. yes. That actually still holds up. Really? When you said old, oh, and I just was like, oh, that's gonna be something ridiculous. <laughs> no, that holds up pretty well. D and D was like, um, well, Spider-Man. I was gonna say I didn't mention comic books, but I did. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I just finished um, Michael Chambers' Cavalier and Clay. Yeah. And I think why so many people love that novel and the power behind that novel is he's just so, he's such a fanboy, for lack of a better word. He really, he just takes it so seriously and he's so excited about it that you feel ridiculous for not taking it seriously, for making like that was ridiculous, for thinking comic books were, were ridiculous. He takes it so seriously that he makes you feel ridiculous. It's like you just didn't understand. <laughs> you just totally didn't why. understand. Like you, you were the idiot, not him. You know, I mean, he just totally, I mean, there's these points where he actually switches voice into like a kind of comic book voice. And it's not, I mean, you, you, that should be corny, right? But it's not. I, I'm saying all that to say that like, um, I hadn't read his book when I first did uh, wrote the Beautiful Struggle, right? Mm-hmm. But all the time leading up to the Beautiful Struggle, even after you know I had gone to college and read you know quote unquote great books that I loved, um, I, you know I loved Gatsby, Grapes Wrath, all that stuff. But I thought this stuff was literature, man. I mean, this was you know Dungeons and Dragons was like the first place I learned that it was okay to just imagine and just sort of let it rip and just let it go. Yeah, you know, um, the whole point was. You know, this whole sort of notion that we deal with a storytelling. If you were a great dungeon master, at the end of the day, you had to be telling a great story because people had to believe you. The people sitting around the table really had to go there with you. So uh, that leads us directly into an enormous essay about Obama and mm-hmm. race in the last <laughs> issue of The Atlantic. It's not directly related, but I wanted to, I wanted to kind of talk about that first. Um, 
because you you wrote something interesting about it um well first of all the piece itself maybe just give, give a little brief about what what you would say how would you describe that piece in a capsule mm. i don't know i guess i was trying to figure out what was the import of a black president actually governing at the four years you know um no african-american expected to, you know no african-american i would say you know born I don't know what, before 1995, expected in his or her lifetime that you would see an African-American president. There's this like difference when Obama was running against Hillary that people don't talk about. I think for a lot of women, the possibility that Hillary Clinton could be president, that there could be a woman, it was not like, I think that's what made it so raw, that it could have been possible. Mm -hmm. You know, like it really, you know, if she wins, I mean, you know, it's pretty clear she's going to beat McCain, you know? So when she declared, it was like, this is going to happen. So it was like a, it was more of a uh, fulfillment of something, right? right. Than just sort of like right. something you would never right. imagine. Right, right, Whereas for us, it was like, Obama was like a dream. I mean, it was like, what? This, this is going to happen? You know, it's, you know, a lot of people have known it all the way up to Iowa. It's like, this isn't really, really going to happen. And then suddenly it's like, so it's a difference between somebody who not only is really believed, but I mean, there's actual substance here. I mean, they're more... You know, women governors than there are African-American governors more, you know, there's been more women senators than there are, you know, African-Americans. So this is actually like, you know, it was a real substance to, you know, believe that if there was going to be anyone, it would be a white woman, Mm -hmm. you know, um, long before it would be a black person of, of either gender. So I think like there was this wonder and. So it's one thing like to be disappointed, like by a dream. Right. It's another thing to be disappointed by, uh something that actually could have happened and maybe should have happened. You know what I mean? Like, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a totally... So Obama, you know, loses the Democratic, you know, no, okay, all right, maybe next time. We'll get him next. We never, we never thought we would be here anyway. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you end up in the Super Bowl. You know, you're, um, I don't know, the first year the Patriots win when they got in on a walk. Okay, here we are. You know, I can't believe we're here. We just you know? happen to be here. We just happen to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then it happened. You know, and once, you know, it happened, I think a lot of our um, conceptions, you know what I mean, of like what what that meant had to be revisited. I mean, it's just like, uh, no black people live in Iowa. I mean, that's what we think, right? You know, you know, what is he doing winning anything in Iowa? Who does that? You know, what black person does that? You know, um, no one expected any Democrat, much less an African-American Democrat, you know, to win a North Carolina, a Virginia? Really? This is happening now? You know, we're doing this? So I think, what does that then mean? You know, does that mean we got it wrong? You know, and, you know, in the immediate upshot of the election, it's pretty clear to me that we had, you know, to some respect, had, you know, underestimated white people, I guess is the best way to put it. I mean... Never do that. Right, right. Never underestimate white people, right? <laughs> right, right. So it's pretty clear we had indeed underestimated white people. They would, in fact, you know, a, 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 you know, a critical mass of white people would support an African-American for president if it got bad enough. You know, it may, you know, again, it looks like we'll support them again this time, too. Um so what does that mean? You know, is it the end of racism? Is it, you know, and, and that's sort of where I was at, at you know, when uh, Barack came in. And after, you know, about four years of this, it became clear it was something different. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't really quite that, you know. Um, so where, where were we? I mean, I, you know, I've been obsessed with this notion. And I think even going into the piece I was of like what constitutes progress. Like, I think like on the left is this sort of idea that this happens, this happens, this happens, and this happens. And that's, I think, sort of maybe a reflection of how history is taught in high school, right? Mm-hmm. Just a progression of Yeah, it's just a progression. Right, right, right. Um, but, you know, if you look at, let's say, you know, like my favorite out of the Civil War, right? Um, the Civil War, you know, there's a strong argument for African-Americans living in the South that their labor situation did not really change. Um, and some historians would probably go so far as to argue that it was for the worse in some ways, right? Um, but the fact is, before 1865, you could take somebody's kid and put them on the auction block, right? And after 1865, you couldn't. Right. I mean, that was a real, that was an actual thing. So how do we reconcile these, you know, two seeming, it was it progress? You know, and it became clear to me that, yeah, it was. Like, that's actually a big deal. That's a huge, huge deal. Um, and so the ability to say, 
yes, we have progress, but progress is not, you know, this sort of just series of rapid advances that, in fact, oftentimes um, it actually presents us with problems mm -hmm. that we never even thought were possible. Mm -hmm. But that is that there's, you know, like one of the things I try to do in my journalism, I'm rambling here, is um, there's this idea of solutionism. Like, this is one of the critiques I sort of make, I guess, you know, in my, you know, when I put on my press critic hat. This need to show people the answer. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's, it's, it's reducible. You know, these complex things are reducible to this one concept. But I, I like the mess. You know, um, a lot of people ask me about that piece. They say, well, you know, do you, what do you think he should do? I don't know yeah. <laughs> what he should do. Well, one you of know? the things that I think is most interesting about that piece is that I, mean, I think, you know, a lot of people would recognize, well, he doesn't talk about race and he doesn't deal with certain issues in a way that maybe people might, might have expected. Right. Certain things haven't changed in ways that you might expect it. But I thought what I really thought was interesting about it was the way you observed that actually his he injects race into issues where it doesn't exist, right. where it has nothing right. to do with it. Right. But by mere fact of him participating in it, right. participating in it, suddenly now there's a reaction on the right yeah. and it brings in this, it brings in all these issues. And it's, yeah. it's not just like a third rail for him. It's actually like everything grows out right. of these, right. these issues. Right, 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 right. You know, yeah, that, that it's the lens through which people, you know, people see him. And did you always think of it as a, as more of an essay because you do nah. there's reporting in there i mean yeah. you spend time yeah with yeah this is you know Shirley I, I went, Sherrod. Shirley right Sherrod? yeah Shirley yeah. Sherrod. yeah I, I i went through and other other reporting that just didn't make it in hmm. you know this is like like if you start off from a journalistic background i actually am coming to think that this is sort of a curse that what we do is we lard our uh piece with quotes often to prove that we were there right mm -hmm. you know and that that's the thing you know we were there here you know i quoted this person i said you know but I mean, that's great. Obviously, I'm not taking a shot at reporting, right? But the question is, does this enlighten anyone or anything? Like, I'm telling you that now, but I was going through it in my head even then. Like, you wanted quotes in there that <laughs> Oh, yeah, to sort I took a trip to done, Chicago, done went and interviewed people and, you know, did all this and that. But it just, you know, and, you know, they were very good about their time, but it just, um, it didn't work. Well, it almost makes the reporting that's in there more powerful because it, it is very essayistic for... Right. 75% or more right, of right, piece. Right, and then right. suddenly you are dropped in right. in the car with Shirley Sherrod right, and you're, right, you're, right. you know, going right. through her history. Right. So, so when I structured the piece, that's what I wanted to, I did want that. I, and I thought like the usual thing, I think often, you know, we have a moment because the fact of the matter is on the scene reporting actually can be like really emotionally powerful. Often it is because the person is like right there. It's the sort of immediacy of them right there. Um, and I was very interested of this idea of putting all of uh, most of the emotional firepower to the back, mm -hmm. you know, putting, you know, the, re the reporting that was there to the back and putting the personal essaying that was there to the back um, of a piece and sort of starting off in a very technical sort of, you know, like not even literally sort of essayistic, but this sort of, you know, just straight argument, you know, uh, sort of way, you know, stats, facts and figures, all that stuff, history, and then sort of, you know, opening up, and you know, giving you an you know, giving you individuals behind that. And was that in your in your mind when you set out to do the reporting, or no. just when you got to sit no. down? And, it was when I started write. writing. It was when I started started writing. You know, um, it was a ton of reading behind it. You know, I read you know uh, a lot of the literature that was out there. You know, there've been so many damn books that have come out. Whew. Barack Obama, but you know, I read and some of them. You know, were really really helpful. Uh, David Remnick's book was really helpful. Uh, Jelani Cobb's book, The Substance of Hope, was really helpful. Randall Kennedy's book, um, the name of which I'm blanking, The Persistence of the Color Line, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> really, really helpful. Um, and so those just, you know, helped me get, you know, just the thinking and the framing of it right and what questions to ask. And Trayvon Martin was not dead when I started the piece. That's the other thing. Uh, okay. You know, that, that forms had, a big yes, portion of this. Yes, 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 yes. And this is like the, for me, like the interesting interplay between blogging and um, long form. You know, because I think in our minds, we think of blogging as getting in the way of long form. And it, it does to some degree. Um, but in that case, it really helped because what you're doing, at least what I was doing, was rehearsing what I thought. Mm -hmm. You know, repeatedly. You just write these drafts of what you're thinking at the time you know, over and over and over and over again. And, you, you know, it's, um, there's something about, you know, as reporters, you know, we, we, you know, you sit back and you think, right? But there's something about typing out what you're thinking, 
you know, um, that just helps. Um, I mean, how often do you, your, your blog, how often do you go back and look at, let's say your initial reaction to, to that mm -hmm, event mm -hmm. and sort of say, well, how do, what feels different now? I mean, you do in, in subsequent blog posts, you'll reevaluate. Right. Right. Um, but how do you feel about the sort of immediacy of your reaction versus, you know, then pulling it out later in this, in this piece? I actually don't, I don't too much. I don't, um, only if I'm looking for something specific, if I, you know, maybe said something a certain way, which does happen and I want to reuse it, you know, in that case, like a sentence or something where I really thought I, you know, captured what was going on. Although that's a whole other issue we could get into. Yeah, yeah, we can, <laughs> we can, we can. Um, you know, um, but again, like I'm, I've always been very explicit about, you know, my process and whenever I publish, you know, um, I always thank, you know, uh, my commenters. I always say, look, you can. And in fact, that's that's actually the presentation that I try to give them. You know, I say, well, the cool thing about coming to this blog is you can see how long form is made. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to totally open it up to you. I mean, there's certain things I can't say. I can't, you know, say, well, here's what I can't transcribe the Shirley Sherrod interview and put it up there before. But I can show you the thinking. I can show you, you know, I can open my notes that I normally would just have back here as it was going along and can even allow you to comment on them. Writing something out actually focuses my thinking. But that's really interesting that I, I never I, I never thought of your blog that way, but that makes perfect sense mm -hmm. that it's like the way somebody uses Evernote or something right. to keep up with their thoughts. It's right. actually more sophisticated. It's not about just publishing story after story. It's right. actually about gathering together your thoughts for I'll tell you something even well. more even more controversial too I learned from the people in the comments and often you know we'll pull there's a section in that in that piece that's um about like the history I'm trying to make this argument that uh birtherism actually has roots in this long tradition of denying African-American citizenship rights right I literally called up this dude who well he's a correspondent now but started off as a commenter on the blog mm -hmm. and it turns out he's a historian uh, up at Babson College and I called him up and I said I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do this I know that like I know in the back of my head that this has happened but do you know like a good book a couple, few good books that have covered this he recommended them I went to him and that, that section is not possible without him mm -hmm. you know um, so beyond that um, it's not even just my thinking you know it's other people's thinking that's amazing I mean I, th I feel like your comment section is kind of it's like one of the fifth wonders of the Web. I mean, not, not just because there are smart people there and they're commenting and they seem to be sort of self-policing in this certain right, way, right. but also because you're writing about things that attract people who say horrible things on the internet. Yeah. And the fact the, that combination, I think, is what makes yeah. it remarkable. I mean, how did you, did that evolve? Did you, how did you come to that? Well, before I was there, um, I, you know, Maddie Glacius was there before me. I love mass blogging. When I first started blogging, I modeled, you know, a large respect between him and Andrew. You know, they were, they were the people. Because I didn't, I started blogging in 2008. I, you know, had been writing long form since 96. So that was not my world at all. Um, so I would read his blog religiously. But whatever he was talking about, somehow at the end of the day, excuse my French, would always come down to fuck them niggas and not, not, not Matt, not what Matt was, but in the comments. Like, Matt would be writing about basketball, you know, about why Allen Iverson isn't an efficient shooter. And I know it fuck them niggas. I mean, they wouldn't say it like that, right? But he'd be like, well, how did this happen? And I can remember as a fan, like as a, a fan of his writing, how I felt as a reader, right? Reading that, okay? I just didn't want that to happen. Yeah. You know, like I, that was kind of coming out of my sensitivity as I think as an African-American reader. I didn't want other African-Americans coming to my space and feeling like, ugh, you know. Um, and I know there's this whole sort of theory that, you know, comments have nothing to do with, you know, what, what the person's writing above, above it. I just don't believe that, you know. Um, I don't want you scrawling graffiti, <laughs> you know, beneath this piece that I just painted, you know. Um, which is funny, right? Because if you look at the actual piece, that Obama piece online, you can see like the most racist comments oh, really? ever. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, you know, I intentionally did not moderate that though. Because I looked at him and after about 50, I was like, oh, this just makes the point. Like this somehow actually compliments the reporting. You're crowdsourcing the uh, reporting there. Yeah, yeah. So how did you, so when you said, okay, I don't want that to happen, was it just, I'm going to moderate the shit out of this thing? Yeah, yeah. And so for the first year, it was a lot of work. Um, it's still a lot of work, but it's not like it was in the first year. Um, because it's like anything, you know, um, spaces are spaces, whether they're virtual or not. Right. So if we're on this block and there are five different bars, 
you know, somebody can, you know, own a bar and say anything goes here. Somebody can own a bar and say, no, if you come in without a tie, I'm going to throw you out. You know, somebody else can say, you know, ladies free before 11. You know, um, somebody else can say we don't play any music. That sets a tone, right? And so your clientele will follow that tone. Mm. Um, and one of the things I quickly realized is it's not simply a matter of weeding out people who you don't want and allowing people who you do want, you know, the space to talk. When you weed out people you don't want, people you do want who would never comment, period, come in. So it's not even just a matter of, I have people here who I think have something to say, I need to make space for them. It's that people who just totally wouldn't comment at all suddenly decide, hey, I think I might be interested in this. Hmm. Um, It still is a good deal of work, and I'm pretty convinced (laughs) that I cannot continue blogging for the rest of my life. I'm pretty sure about that. I don't know. What is a what is a day? What is a sort of normal day of blogging look like? I can't even describe that because I just get up in the morning and go after it. You know, um, it's just a lot of you know whatever has to be done that day. I, I try to you know go. You know, um, I don't have a schedule. I probably should. You know, to try to keep okay. Here's your fiction here. Your long forms here. Your you know blogging is here. I, I don't have that. The only thing I have is I sp- I do. This is probably you know says something about me. Every day I do spend an hour writing fiction at least. Always, always. And I don't, God, that's a, actually kind of a terrible statement because everything else gets planned around that. Well, you know, at least you can, you can carve out time for it. I think yeah. it's a lot harder with, with say reporting to say, okay, I'm going to carve out an hour for reporting. Well, see the worst part is because you don't know how that's going to go. Yeah. You have no idea how that's going to go that day. You can't, you can't bend it to your, yeah. to your hour. Yeah. Well, no, I think like for your reporting, I, I've always, see, that's different. I think you need to say I, that this day will go to this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what's going to happen in this day, but I have to be open to whatever could happen in this day. You know, um, because you don't know who's going to call you back. You don't know how long that's going to take. You don't know where that, you know, reading is going to take you, you know. Um, right. You were talking about the the sort of research that you reading, all the Obama books you read for this Obama mm-hmm. piece. And it was interesting because I was reading the, I was reading the piece almost at the same time that I was reading The Beautiful Struggle. Okay. And I noticed just it just felt different because i'm i'm reading about how your upbringing and we don't we don't have to go through all that because mm-hmm. it's in the book and it's articulated probably better than we could do in a few minutes <laughs> but just that when you drop something like uh a reference to stokely carmichael mm-hmm. in the piece it's different than a reporter who just gathered a lot of research and said okay yeah. now i'm going to put together a long form piece you're actually drawing on something from from you know knowledge that you gain yeah. through you know as it says in the book, you know, kind of your father. So yeah. just t- tell a little bit about... Um, See, that right there makes me sad. Really? Yeah, because it's like, how many stories are going to be like that? You can't ever write anything like that again. Oh. I mean, I mean, maybe there's something else which you've, you know, been thinking about, you know, but this was like, you know, uh, that was, I mean, it was unique to have an opportunity to write like that, to have, to write about like an African-American president and have been thinking about issues like this I mean, since I was like 10, you know, and have been raised on issues like that, you know, um, there's a point in there, like when I quote Lucille Clifton, I read that and, and the poem is, um, love rejecting hurts more than love rejected, love rejected, love rejected hurts more than love rejecting. They act like they don't love their country. No, what it is, is they found out their country don't love them. I read that when I was 19 and was a, you know, a raving black nationalist. And I was like, oh, like, it was like one of these oh moments. It was like, oh, something's wrong here. You know, um, something that I think is not quite right. <laughs> you know, um, I've been turning that over, like the meaning of that poem for like years, man. I mean, you know, literally over 10 years. You know, um, my friend Prince, who I, you know, talk about in there, he died in 2000, 2001. You know, I've been thinking about what that meant for years. Yeah, I saw you a know? reference to that in um a village voice piece you did mm-hmm. years ago about yeah. uh, your wife getting robbed. Right, right, and you make right. reference to it. So. Right, right, right. So that just doesn't, I mean, usually you're coming in and it's like, okay, so I've tried to immerse myself in this for a little while. And, you know, even if you get a year, you know, to think about this stuff. I mean, I see that people who do that and make it look like they've been thinking about it their whole life, you know, and just, you know, do it wondrously. But um, no, I don't think that'll happen again. But before I had read your book, one thing that I knew about you because it was in some bio or something someone had read, someone had written about you at some point or another was that you didn't finish college. Right. But if you read the book, 
it actually ends with you. The book ends <laughs> with you starting college. college. Yeah. So what happened and how did you move from dropping out of college into journalism? Did you drop right. out of college directly into journalism? Right. They wanted an epilogue to that book, too, so everybody could know that everything ended up okay. <laughs> and I said, no, the story's over. That's the end of the story. <laughs> I, uh, I was never meant to be in school, at least not then, not as a young person. I think now I would do a lot better, but at that point, I was not meant to be in school. I went to school. I had always loved to write, though. Um, I failed English in 11th grade and had to retake it. <laughs> Um, I failed humanities, was it, in college? I failed Brit Lit, I think, and I failed American Lit. I was like a horrible... All the things that should point you towards the profession that (laughs) you currently have. Right, no, no, no. I I failed all of them, man. failed all of them. Um, And I didn't have bad... Well, now I had bad teachers. You know, it wasn't their fault. Um... I just wanted to read what I wanted to read when I wanted to read. I was very impatient. You know, I used to, when I was in college, I used to cut class and go in the library. You know, this is, uh, you know, I went to Howard, Howard University in D.C. and there's this uh, research center, Moreland Spingarn Research Center, where my dad actually used to work. He wasn't working there when I was there. He probably would have killed me had he seen me because Moreland Spingarn Research Center has, <clears throat> at least at that time, basically any book written about anything about black people. You just go in there and fill out a card and say, I want to see this. Hmm. And in the room, there are all these like old like photographs of African-American intellectuals who, you know, either went to Howard, spent some time at Howard, you know, ringing the room. And you go in there and it's like this holy temple. I used to cut class and just sit in there, man. You know what I mean? And just pull books. At the time, I thought I wanted to be a poet. I would pull, you know, just all sorts of black poets. They had a, a museum in the library that had, you know, just this, at the time they were running this gallery of famous photos that had been taken at Howard. So you could see like Bayard Rustin debating Malcolm X. You see W.E.B. Du Bois there, Langston Hughes, you know. All these people, Rayford Logan, who had these associations with Howard University. And I said, yes, that's what I want. Um, I, 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 I want to do that, you know. Um, so I wasn't very interested in class, right? And I was a horrible, horrible student. But at the same time, I would pick up Washington City paper, right? There were two things going on. I would read Washington City paper, and they would do, this is, they would publish, like, the longest of long form. I mean, these, like, 15,000, imagine a 15,000-word article in a newspaper, man. Unbelievable. Yeah, they would publish these pieces, right? And I would read every week. And I had this, like, love-hate relationship with them at the time, right? It's funny, because, I, you know, I, I'm pretty friendly with a lot of people that were writing and publishing and stuff at the time. But I had this vague sense that they were kind of racist, which they probably were not. I mean, they, they were not. I know that now, looking back on it. But I had this vague sense. And I think part of it was, how can you have something called Washington City Paper have, like, basically no black writers? I think they had one. I think they had Janetta Rose Brass. I said, you know, how can this be? Like, how can this happen? You know? And so I had this, like, stewing anger at City Paper. And at the same time, um, the New Republic was doing uh, their stuff at the time, you know, and they had the whole Stephen Glass thing. And what people don't remember about Stephen Glass is he got caught on that um, that one piece. But before that, uh, he did this piece. I think it's called The Meaning of Taxi Cabs and Work. And it's all about how lazy <laughs> native-born black people in D.C. are. It's literally about this. It has this incredible scene at the end where Stephen Glass is in a cab with this foreign-born cab driver. And a black dude, native-born from D.C., literally gets in the cab and robs the cab driver. It's the most fantastic thing. Now, I don't know if that. I actually, to be fair, I don't know if that actually happened. But, you know, like, they were publishing stuff like this. And Andrew, who, again, I'm friendly with now, is so weird. You know, he did that bell curve thing at the time. And Howard, you know, is this place, you know, it has this, you know, past of, like, writers being there. Amiri Baraka was there. Uh, Tony Morrison went to Howard. You know, uh, Ossie Davis was at Howard. So they have this sort of, you know, artistic literary history, right? And um, there's this notion. It's very different, you know. Uh, um, I would argue for African-American writers where uh, literacy and writing is connected to, like, the African-American freedom struggle. To be a writer is kind of an act. You know, you're going to war. That's what you're doing. You're not just, it's not just you like stringing pretty words together or you like stories. I mean, you do, but this is also a political act on behalf of your people. 
<clears throat> and so reading that, you know, and they would like uh, that bell curve issue, man. They Xerox somebody maybe in the psych department. I think it must have been. They Xerox that issue and handed it out in class. I said, this is what you're going to have to deal with when you go out in the world. And you're going to have to go out and fight these motherfuckers. I mean, that was like, you know, it was serious. So here I am in, you know, 19, it's about 19, well, about 1995. I, you know, I think by that point I had dropped out of Howard and came back to Howard twice at that point. Um, I was floating around. I hadn't done any real journalism outside of the campus newspaper. And I knew this woman, uh, Holly Bass, in D.C., who had worked at City Paper for a year. They had, like, you know, uh, this minority fellowship that she had done. So they knew, like, they knew they had a problem, right? <laughs> and she had done it for a year, and she had liked it. And she said, you know, you should go talk to these people. Um, and I said, what the hell I want to talk to them for, <laughs> right? I said, no, no, you should go talk to them. You never know, right? I uh, put together a package which included some of my woeful poetry, Um some, you know, like, clips from my student newspaper. It must have been awful writing, just the worst. And I sent it in, right? And this wasn't for, a, you know, a minority fellow. This was just for a summer internship thing, yeah. right? And I got a call. He said, hey, why don't you come in? And I said, okay, all right. <laughs> I go in. And the first person I meet is David Plotz, right, who runs Slate now. <laughs> David Plotz is the first professional editor I've ever met in my life. Wow. You know, um, and what I was told was, yes, this is David Plotz. He's the number two here, and he'll be leaving to go and run this thing called Slate. What the fuck is a Slate? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know what the fuck is that area? It was probably. a Microsoft thing at that time. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I think it was. I think it was a Microsoft uh, a partnership at that point. So um, he was leaving, and the next person I met was David Carr. That's a, quite a pair to be your introduction to journalism. Yeah, yeah, but I had, well, he wasn't. David Carr at that point, you know, air quotes. Um, but in many ways, he was David Carr because within, you know, I would say a week of meeting him, he informed me that he was a recovering crack addict. Um, I knew everything about him, and it was just, you know, just really, really weird. And you have to understand, look, I'm a young, you know, black boy coming out of West Baltimore. I had complete culture shock. I mean, these people wore shorts to work, and it was like 50 degrees outside. I mean, it was just totally, you know, different. But they weren't like me, right? Like, they weren't like, everybody was extremely welcoming, you know what I mean? But I had these defenses up, and I was like, you know, who are these people? But you know, I got, I got the job, I got the internship, and the notion that anybody would pay you to do it wasn't any money, too. I think it was like $400 a month, and you got paid 10 cents a word for whatever you wrote. But somebody was going to pay you to write. I mean, I was like, what the hell? Really? It's still kind of amazing. I mean, how would I'm paying people to write? I mean, basically, right? You know, somebody's going to give you money to go write. And, you know, I report for my first day. And they say, okay, here's the internship. You may have to do some scut work, but the basic notion is you have to find things that get into the paper and we'll pay you if you do. I said, oh, hell yeah, you know, and that was it. That really, really was it. I think I might have gone to the library and Xerox some stuff for them or something like that. But I would come in during the day and I would just read, you know, and I would just read and I would make phone calls or do whatever. And, you know, I would go find stories. And, you know, starting out, you know, and I think Carr recruited a lot of people like this. I was not by any means a natural reporter. You know, I think I've always graded myself as about a C minus reporter trying to get a B plus, you know. Um, and I think out of the people who were there at that time, I think, you know, my career at City Paper probably would get about a B or B minus. Um, the level of talent there was just, I mean, they were people who were much, much more talented. Um, I, I had this friend, Amanda Ripley, and this is like when I got introduced to like like what journalism actually is at its rawest. Um, she had to do a piece on some somebody. I can't remember even what the piece was. But basically, she had to go down to Southeast D.C. and she had to just knock on this dude's door mm -hmm. and, you know, get some quotes from him, which was terrifying. I was like, what, people do this? You know, so I, I drove it. She needed a ride. I drove it down and I watched her do this. And Amanda's like this five-foot, you know, white girl from born and raised in Oregon, went to Cornell, and she just didn't care. She didn't, just didn't care. So at that point, like, my whole black macho thing kicks in. I said, oh, you going to be punked? You can't do this? You can't just walk up to people and talk to them? You going to be scared? You know? <laughs> so, I mean, like, and I think, like, reporters had this ego thing. Like, wait, I'll walk up to anybody and say anything. That's what I'll do. That's the job. That's what I do, right? So, um, 
I think, you know, the fact of the matter, it didn't, you know, it, it took a while to, you know, if I'm honest, to get over that, right? To get over that part of the job. And I think even now, it's a little scary. You know, I mean, even the little stuff. Like, I knew Shirley Sherrod's history. You want to ask this woman about her dad and how he got killed? That's what you want to do? So I think some some people just are naturals at yeah talking to people that they've never met and making them feel comfortable. So I got to ask, I you, can, you, can you just walk? I mean, do you, does it come natural to you to do that? Uh, it does not come naturally, no. Yeah. I mean, I, the last long piece I did, I walked all over East Brooklyn looking for this guy, knocking mm. on doors, just asking, has anyone Jesus seen Christ. this guy? And uh, every time I had to do it, I, you know, I would sit, I would actually get out of the subway and sit there for 20 <laughs> minutes and say, all right, I'm going to do this. Right. I'm going to walk out, I'm going to do this. Right. It's going to be fine. I think it's, it's, uh, it's not a natural thing to do necessarily, to pry into people's lives, asking questions they don't want to be asked. Right, right. But so did you feel like you, as you sort of gravitated towards or you grew into then moving to the Village Voice, working <coughs> the Village Voice and starting to freelance and those right. sorts of things that you, you, you did feel like, I'm a reporter, this is what I am, I'm a reporter? Did you feel more like, I'm a writer and I do some reporting to kind of, that's, that's part of this job? No, I would say I'm a reporter. I got to say it. I pay my dues for that one, man. Because that was the thing. And then I came to respect it. Like quickly, very quickly at that job, within about three months, I came to respect it. Um, and it's just something about this idea that you're so curious that you will go up to somebody. I mean, and just say, what the hell happened here? And the fact of the matter is most times what you think is going to happen ain't actually what happens. Like in your mind, you know, um, it's probably wrong to, to think of it this way. But being a, a male uh, who was a young male at the time, the way I thought about it was how as a young man at that point, I can't believe I'm saying you would go up to a woman in a club. What you thought was going to happen was never what was going to happen. I mean, to the good and the ill. You know, I mean, just go up and be a decent person. Try being a decent human being and then see what happens, right? Um, and I had this piece, I did this tip that I got while I was at City Paper. And a buddy of mine was a lawyer. He said, you know, every day there's this scene at the homeless shelter where people who are hired to do evictions drive up and get homeless people to go then and do ev go then do evictions to actually help them move the <laughs> yeah. stuff out so of course that sounds great right that's homeless right. people who make other people homeless it's amazing that's awesome right and i told Carl about that story and he said yes i want that story and i'm thinking oh shit i don't know where this happens i don't know who does this what homeless shelter where does this go so of course what's the way you do it you go to a homeless shelter and say do you do evictions that's all that's the only, there's no way, other way to find that story except doing that. And the first day I went down there and I stood there and I went home. I said, uh-uh, no way. No way am I doing that. Um, but the job was so tied to it, right? Like, you have to get stories. You can't sit in the back of the paper and be one of these, you know, literary motherfuckers and just talk about what you think, thought of the new, you know, Helter Skelter. I mean, you have to, you got to go report. That was the way the job was set up. I mean, you can do that too, and that's good. That counts, but... You know, you got to contribute. Um, so second day, I went up down there. I said, okay, either I do this or I'm going to lose my job. It's just that simple. You know? <laughs> and I went up to, the, to one of the guys. I just picked one at random. I said, excuse me, do you do evictions? And he said, no, I don't. But that guy over there does. <laughs> and it just, the story just fell in. You know, he just went, you know, and they wanted to talk. And that's the other thing. Like, people want to talk. That's I mean, it's always really amazing. kind of a miracle. It's yeah. It's it, maybe it's changed a little bit. People are more you think press so? shy, I feel like, than the ordinary people. I don't know if it's just is it the, the internet? saturation and the internet. Yeah. And no, that's a great point, though, because I think at that point, and this is before the internet really gets big, um, for you to have your story out in some sort of place probably meant something in a sort of way, and maybe not now. You know, Although still, for if people are feeling marginalized or they're not mm -hmm. really addressed by any media, I'm sure it's right. pretty much the same thing. Right. But so, tell me a little bit about how you moved out of the city paper and, right. and on to other things. So, I um, uh, was blessed with a baby boy in 2000. And I think we can all say that that was not planned for. I think he knows that by now. We've had many conversations about this fact. Um, but I loved my girlfriend then, um, not my now wife. Um, Although we didn't get married till last year. We were together for like 12 years and then get married. But I, I did love her very much, and I, I thought she would be a great mother. And um, Carr has this great line in his book where he says, there was nothing in my past 
and he had a colorful past. There was nothing in my past that justified being a bad father. So, you know, I could be a college dropout. That was fine. I could have a shit job. That was fine. But, you know, you got you to gotta be a dad, right? And the crazy thing is people talk. So I was 24 when my son was born. Um, and people always say um, the kids get in the way, right? But it actually had the opposite effect on me. Like, I, you know, I feel like I could have spent my 20s doing all sorts of self-destructive things. That was my natural inclination. Um, but having a kid suddenly makes that not okay, right? Um, it's fun to stay out late and get drunk and fall asleep on the subway. But if you don't come home, it's not just you that's in trouble. You know what I mean? Like, there are other people who are now at stake. Um, by that point, I was a writer. That was what I, you know, had chose to do. Um... Either I was going to do that well or other people were going to suffer. So everything, like the stakes of everything just went up. You know, I think I'm the sort of person that I just, I, I for whatever reason, and I probably will dive in also because of this, I only respond to pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, and that just so, I mean, that kid just so raised the pressure for everything. That's the different difference between saying, oh, someone will pay me 10 cents a word to go write this story. I can yeah. make some money at this yeah. to saying... I have to make a living of this. Right, right, right. I need that. I need that. I got a story. So I started, actually, the first bridge at the city paper was Washington, uh, the Washington Monthly, right? So I started writing for the monthly, right? You know, the monthly face. (laughs) Shit, everybody knows that, right? And they were paying 10 cents a word at this point, right? But because they have, you know, these big shots, right? Nobody ever calls for the check. But I said, no, I need you to send me that check. (laughs) You know, I know it's only $150, but I actually need that check. You really have to send that check. Right, but I need because it's no money. I mean, it's not you don't write for the Washington money monthly for money. Only I do that. (laughs) Only I did that. Right, you know. Before Samari being a you know a writer a reporter, it was really romantic. It was this sort of thing. You know, I was in D.C. and you know, um, I you know wrote like quite a bit about the art scene there. And so you would go out and people would know you were da da da, and it was fun. And then it was like, no, this is what you do. You know, we're grownups now. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, 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 I think, you know, changed everything. So, you know, I, I freelanced for uh, the monthly for uh, quite a while. See, and I think the thing there was like, um, I think the hardest thing about young people now uh, who want to, you know, if you're, say, the age I was when I started, which is 20, and you say, I, you know, I want to write long. Where do you go to practice? I mean, what, like, how do you learn? You know, I mean, and I guess there's some people who, you know, go the newspaper route and they come out and they somehow had skills to write long. I wouldn't have been like that. You know, um, I, I couldn't have been a traditionalist, you know. And some of the people I admire the most, you know, Remnick, Jeff Goldberg, uh, Gladwell. I mean, these guys, like, they start out on these cop beats, right? I'm convinced I couldn't have done that in 2021, 22, 23, 24. I couldn't, have, I just, I wasn't built like that then. You know, I just totally, totally wasn't. I was not, I would not have seen the importance of it. I could not have gotten there through that route, you know. Um, so if you're young, how do you do it? How you do it now, you know? And the monthly really, the best thing was I got practice. I got to practice, you know. And that was, you know, in addition to finding some way to make money, you know, I've been very lucky because after coming here, I repeatedly, you know, was able somehow to secure opportunities to keep practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the hardest part. I don't know how you get good otherwise. I don't know either. I mean, I think there are now, I mean, you got a blog. That's, right. I think that's. But that's can you, I mean, does that now. give you the same sort of practice of going back and forth with an editor? You know, um, you're sort of just subject to your own standards, which I, I needed at that age, somebody. I mean, at this point, it is really just me, I think. Um, but I think that's because I'm older now. You know, like my editors now are, are, are making me better right but i know at that age i needed to be held to some sort of account mm-hmm. like i actually needed somebody to say no we don't do that no you should go do this like i needed that a lot more um i needed to be afraid like i that was like a big part of you know learning the importance of reporting i think i i think i could have very easily you know one way or the other become somebody who just totally did essay right um and that's cool, but then I can't go really talk to Shirley Sherrod like I did. Like that, I don't really have the ability to do that. Right, you have you to know? build that skill and yeah. combine that skill into putting that into a piece right. that's structured and everything else. Right. Have somebody tell you it's tear it down and tell you to build yeah. it back up again. Yeah, you know, working at the monthly or freelancer for the monthly. You know, working at the Village Voice for a few years, even working at Time Magazine after that. 
Um, all these are just opportunities to just sort of practice over and over and over and over and over again. Come into the Atlantic. It's the best thing. It's sort of like a trap because it's like somebody has to believe in you enough to let you practice. And then like, uh, but the only people who get to practice are the people who somebody believes in. You know? It um, is. It's a terrible catch-22. <clears throat> Actually, that that's, I think, relevant to, I wanted to ask you about this. You posted the other day about, yeah. just about diversity right. in magazines. And, you know, it was just interesting that you were saying there was there is this sort of uh, privilege and mm -hmm. uh, there's sort of a profile for the magazine editor that's yeah. white Ivy League right. East Coast kind of person right. and then uh, I can't remember what the exact line was but it was sort of take that very thin profile and put right. it under the pressure right. of, of what's happening yeah and then yeah. you get a disastrous situation but I right. think there's another aspect of it too which is what you just described right. speaking as someone who has a small publication you know we depend on people to pitch us. Right. And so the question is, who do we give a chance to? We usually give a chance to somebody who's done it before. Right. And how did they get the chance to do it before? How do you how <laughs> right. do you get the first chance? Right. Such that the next person can and I feel like that also is a barrier. So so actually I have a question for you relating to that. And that is this. So my first being on the outside, my perception was, okay, magazines, you know, long form writing, it's all white, right? And then I got into it and it became no, no, it's actually something more than all white. It's, you know, a specific geography. Um, when I first, you know, got on blogging for the Atlantic, I think everybody else on the blog wrote, God, you know, God bless them. I love them all. Every one of them was an Ivy Leaguer. Um, I think I don't. I don't know if you what what the numbers, how the numbers would come out on our masthead at the Atlantic, but I would not be shocked if it was in the 85, 90 percent range for Ivy League, and it might even be one school. Um, there were no Southerners. <laughs> so earlier I was asking you, right? Like, because you're from Atlanta, right? Your family's from Alabama. So it's like, not only were there no black people, but, you know, I didn't know anybody from, say, Tennessee, you know? Yeah, I mean, well, my... my I know I'm not supposed to be interviewing you. No, I, just I mean, I, I think that there is, there's obviously an incredibly intense diversity problem mm -hmm. in this particular profession. But I think... That issue is when it comes to like the level of Ivy League or sort of geographic. Right. It's just sort of people are comfortable with people that came from a similar background. Right. It's not even, you could say there's a part of it that relates to internships and right. people who can work for free and they come from, you know, somebody has an internship application from. Yale, so at this point, how is that know? not just prejudice then? If I'm comfortable, I'm just comfortable with people I know. Isn't that just prejudice at that point? Yeah. yeah. I'm saying, yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. It yeah. Is. yeah, right, right. But right. I, I'm not yeah. saying it's not prejudice. I'm right. saying it's it's what people refusing to kind of like get outside yeah. of what they what they came from. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I, I can't, I went to Duke. I didn't go to right. Ivy League school, but right. that's not that far outside of that right. same profile. So. Right, 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 um, right. But, I, but there's, when it comes to the actual writing, mm -hmm. I think there's an even harder problem, which mm -hmm. is the problem of wanting to not spend money it, i mean stories cost a lot of money they do. so they do. you're going to invest money in someone and you're really taking a chance on them that right. they're not going to waste your money right so right. how do you find people that are not going to waste your money but while at the same time expanding the diversity of people that you're reaching out to i think that is the hardest i got a story challenge. to tell you about that um by the time i came to the atlantic i had lost like three jobs in a succession of like six years something crazy like that you mean lost like Either I got fired, I got fired, I was at Philly Weekly, and I got fired effectively. Why didn't, I basically got fired from Philly Weekly. Um, the Village Voice, it got to a situation where I, I had to leave. Um, I came home one day, um, and I told my wife, and I said, um, look, uh, they wanted me, I'll never forget, they wanted me to write a column on black, on the black male experience. And I told her, I said, look, I'm going to be done. If this happens, I will never, All because at that point, I was like, I want to write for the New York, I want to write for the New York. I said, that will never happen. That's the end of that. I'm telling you right now. I mean, so you have to allow me to quit, you know. Um, and she said, you know, she didn't even better. She said, quit. Didn't even better. I'll ask about it. Um, so lost that job, got the time. Three months after I got time, they were laying people off. <laughs> and then, you know, because you know with the economy, you know, what was basically happening in magazines at that point. And, you know, about a year after that, I got laid off, right? Um, but while I was there, I was working on this story on Bill Cosby. And they said, all right, you know, well, you know, his, you can write about Bill Cosby for a page. I was excited. I'm going to page on Bill Cosby, right? I got laid off. And the most depressing thing about getting laid off was that that story was going to die. I just knew there was like this 
meaty thing there. And I had somebody who I knew at another publication, which would totally go nameless. Um, and I pitched it to them and they liked it, right? And then they ran it up the chain. I'll never forget this. And the person came back to me and said, you know what? I really like this idea. I took it to my editor. But the editor said, the only way we would do this is if somebody like Henry Louis Gates would write this. Now, that's the problem you're talking about. Mm -hmm. That's, In fact, that's all of the problems you're talking about. That's comfort right there, right? I mean, and not even like a prejudice. I mean, it's a kind of race prejudice, right? But it's much more of a race prejudice of someone who I am comfortable with. So how can I put this? Um, a black person who I am comfortable with. That's what it is. That's what it is. It was probably the only moment that I felt like something actually racist had happened to me in a period of trying to, you know, make it in the form. Because the fact of the matter is... I knew that the publication all the time was giving chances to people who, you know, wanted to write about wild stories that they liked, right? Who they, you know, might not necessarily know. And at that point, you know, um, that was like heartbreaking, right? But here are connections. Here are connections. I was lucky because at that point, uh, Carr had been my first editor. He knew James Bennett who's the editor at The Atlantic. It's total, I mean, I wish I could tell you it was like pluck, right? And I had worked so hard and I, you know, printed up my clip. It didn't happen like that at all. He knew James Bennett. He had worked at The Atlantic before he had come to the New York Times. He looked at the pitch and said, I think this is actually a decent pitch. Um, and he sent it over to Bennett. But the pluck for that started, it started 10 years before that. I yes, mean, there, but yes, it, yes. It but it means in... nothing if I don't know anybody. Right. You know, like if I don't know anybody, then that's it. Then I, that's a story that I'm telling my son like 30 years from now. And I'm really angry and frustrated and convinced the world conspired against me and kept me from being totally great or something like that. Right. That's because that's what happens. I mean, as an African-American, you know, part of the experience, you know, of particularly like my father's generation, my grandfather's generation is knowing these like black people who went to Tuskegee and went to Howard and ended up like delivering mail. Who you were know? brilliant. Or yeah. Who were really smart, who clearly should have been doing something yeah. better. You know what I mean? And like the bitterness of that, right? You know, um, I think about my own dad. Like we dropped out of high school um, and just used to cut school and like would go to the museum and like go to the library and always read and always was intellectual who I know, you know, in another lifetime would have been my editor at one of these magazines, right? Like I know that just knowing him, you know? Um, but I know somebody, right? I have like, I got, you know, somehow I managed to have some degree of social capital. He takes it over there. And not only do they say you can write this, but they say, you know what? You can write this at 8,000 words. I remember that was a long story. Yeah. And they say, and not only that, I remember writing. I said, well, I, okay, so I'll send you some clips. He said, no, we'll need to see a clips. I said, what? You know, and what is that based on? That's based on you knowing somebody. Yeah. You know, I mean, God bless the Atlantic, right? Because, no, you know, there are plenty of people who, you know, I've had hookups and it didn't work out, you know, even knowing somebody, right? But that's like all of that. Like, that's the, how can that happen? You know, if you're young, you're black, and you're trying to make it in. I mean, if you're young, period, and trying to make it in, chances of that happening? I mean, this is like 07, 08, all of these magazines have died. You know, it just, it just doesn't happen, man. But now you know that there's some editor somewhere in New York saying, uh, we'd assign that if ta Codes pitched it. That's a horrible feeling. <laughs> Do you think that that's true, a, though? I, I don't know, but I hope not. I really, really hope not. I don't want to be that guy. No, I but really... Henry Louis Gates is not that guy. It's not... It's not yeah. Uh, he didn't do anything except yeah. excel right. for that to happen. Right, right, right. It seems like that could be happening. Yeah, I really hope not. That, 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 that would be really, really depressing. That shouldn't happen. I got a buddy right now, um, and I hope he doesn't mind me shouting him out, but uh, mostly secret. He writes for the, for the Times right now, right? He's a Metro boy. He's a gifted, gifted writer. I knew him. We had the Village Voice together, and I knew he was gifted at the time. And he can tell his own story. I won't tell him, but he basically, I watched him get screwed over. And, you know, I had lunch with him recently, and he talked to me about how he made his way back through the times. And he was, he ended up, uh, what it was, was he ended up working at ProPublica. He went and had a bunch of bad experiences. Somehow got lucky enough to end up at ProPublica, the Times saw him, and then he ended up at the Times. God bless the Times. God bless him for that happening. But at the same time, I talked to him a few months ago, and he said, I was about to go to law school. I was done. I was like, oh, well, this ain't going to happen. You know, and then this kid goes from there and he's writing, you know. So I found out he's at the Times because I pick up the front page and I say, oh shit, it's Mosi, who I haven't talked to since The Voice, right? And you think about like how easy, 
you know, it is to fall out. I don't know how much of that is race, right? Like you could argue that it's like that for any writer, you know, but that is just, you see that and it's just utterly, utterly depressing because there's so few of us. I think, yeah, I think you could say that it's difficult for any writer, right? but because it's difficult, you don't need a, a additional barriers. Right. Nobody needs additional barriers <laughs> right, to, try right, to get, right, right. make a living. Right. It's already hard. Doing it, reporting. And it's writing. already hard. So then we get to the hard part, right? Um, there are economic reasons for why this is the case. So what, what, what do we do then? What do we do? I mean, one of the cool things they did at the Atlantic is they finally started funding the internship, right? So it used, one of the big barriers used to be the way to get in was you had to go to one of these magazines and take an unpaid internship. And, you know, obviously you needed resources to be able to do that. But what else? I mean, I think it's uh, it's the same thing with the with gender bylines. You know, it's right. of, there's the see that's a, that to me is actually a much. Somebody wrote me about that the other day. Maybe they said it in the comment section. I, and I said I actually have much less sympathy for the gender argument because I think it's easy to say well, black people are in a certain economic profile, and in general, writers don't really come to that profile. Racist. How do you explain the gender one? Well, I'm not going to explain it because the couple times that I have. I, I am interested in that, and right. I have spent time talking about it, and it's hard to say anything that doesn't infuriate people. Mm. Like, I don't have a reason why it's right. true. We've tried to do something about it right. and partially succeeded, but every time I go talk about it, it's like you're raising your head up as the person who's going to represent all of the editors <laughs> who have ever fucked someone over. Yeah, no, that's true. But is there, no, is there, besides paying interns, you know, 15 bucks an hour, is there, is there something else? Like, what would you tell me to do? You know, it's really tough because, like, uh, even paying is not enough. What, what happened with me? Well, I grew up in a house where I was surrounded by books. There were books everywhere. Books falling over everywhere. Not only were there books everywhere, my dad had a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. And it was not from my dad that I, that I it was not from David Carter I learned that the center column was great. It was from my dad. You know, I came to New York with my dad in maybe 95, I think it was. And he said, you know, and this was back when they were really, really, really good at doing stuff. You know, he said, you know, every time I come to New York, I pick up this little paper called the New York Observer. You should read it whenever you're here. This is just, he don't know nobody that reads the New York Observer. You know, how do you, I mean, that, that's just like luck. You know, um, so I was sort of primed. You know, he gave me uh, Greg Tate's book when I was like, 13 or 14 years old, at this point, Greg Tate is working for the Village Voice, and it's like, people write essays and make a living somewhere? Like, that happens? I mean, that, that's just a possibility, really? You know? Um, so, I got lucky, like, 10 different ways. You know? Um, I don't have an answer. I just don't. I, you know, what, what would I do if I ran a place, if I had power? What would I do? If I had absolute... Because you can have it, I'll, I will. I will hand it over. To okay. You, all right. Basically. All right. I'll be. I'll be uh, uh, the director of diversity for the ad of this. Right no, now. I mean you for can have the whole thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. 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 You it's can be the editor. Right. <laughs> it's yours. I mean, um, I'll tell you what I would do. I'll tell you what I would do. If I were running a J school publication, I would start a magazine, and in fact, I would have my magazine program be a magazine. Instead of having a magazine program, I would have an actual magazine that I would try to publish, that I would try to make high quality, and then I would try to go recruit with great diversity. That's what I would do. Because that's the place where practice should happen, theoretically, in J schools. I mean, that's, that's where, and I probably would do this if I, you know, I probably would run, a, and apparently maybe somebody in Missouri is actually doing this. I think they actually do put out a daily paper at a J school. So I'm not, it's not like I'm inventing anything, but if I were running a J school, I would put out actual, actual publications and I would aggressively go to historically black colleges and recruit people. And you might have to then change the whole frame of it. Like, I mean, that's because I would say you probably need, like, if you want to practice, you need to practice a lot. Like, you probably need, shoot, three or four years like that, man. You know, it would be much more akin to getting a PhD. I mean, that's the, the amount of time to get good. Um... Okay, so ideally, like Pie in the Sky, you would be at some magazine and you would be able to write, you know, you would, at City Paper, we used to have to publish uh, a long article every, I think it was every six weeks, you had to publish something about 5,000 words. So what, that's about 10 times a year that you're, you know, really, you know, going after it. That's I, a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think if you did that for about three or four years, you probably would be pretty good. You probably would be pretty good. 
you know. But I think the whole experience of being published, it being disseminated out in the world, people criticizing it, like I think all the process would have to be in place. Um, so that's my solution. <laughs> this seems like a, as good a time as any to remind you that you're under assignment for us. I am under assignment <laughs> for that. <laughs> I am, I am, I am. I'm going to do it, too. I really am. I really am. <laughs> we won't talk about what the story is. We don't want to spoil it. No, no, we don't. It's a great story. It's historical. Jesus, it's fantastic. It's awesome. Oh, you're making me feel awful here. No, that wasn't I don't feel bad I enough. I drop that in. Yeah, no, see, I'm, I'm sweating now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks for doing this. No, really thank you. appreciate it. Thank you. It was easy. It was a ball. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. I host this show with Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. It's edited by Lauren Kirchner, who deserves a particular thank you this week for putting up with me. Thanks also to ta Coates for taking the time. If you want to read any of the articles that Evan and ta talked about, they'll be in the show notes at longform.org slash podcast. And if you want something completely different to read, check out the new enhanced e-comic or graphic nonfiction or nonfiction comic or whatever other term the Atavist is using to describe their awesome new book, Stowaway, by Tori Marlin and Josh Newfeld. You can get it at atavist.com or on the iPad. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.